0: Our family was able to get away for just a few nights this last week. We headed over the mountains to Leavenworth. A change of scenery was welcome, and beautiful scenery at that. Early one morning, sitting out on our porch, looking up in the mountains, sipping coffee, sun shining, I noticed there was an osprey perched on the top of a tree, silently watching the large pond that was outside our condo. The osprey is a large predatory bird, also called the fish hawk. so you probably know where this story is going. Suddenly, it dove from the top of the tree and plummeted the hundred or so feet into the water. For a moment, it was completely submerged, and when it emerged, it held in its talons a decent-sized trout, and it took off into the forest. And you know what my first thought was? This will reveal how twisted my brain often is. I wondered what those last 30 seconds were like for the trout. I wondered I wonder how his morning was. Floating along in the pond, snatching a few morning bugs, soaking in the sun— feeling pretty darn good about himself. You know, big fish, small pond, pretty comfortable with life, until without warning, no more. Perspective is everything, isn't it? We're longing for a a view from above, when all too often we're swimming along in life, soaking in the sun, oblivious to the dangers around us and how suddenly everything can change. We need perspective, wisdom, and hope. We've been praying and searching And that's why we're studying the words of this ancient letter, written 2,600 years ago, but still so relevant for us today. Why? Because God's Word doesn't only tell of what happened, it tells us what always happens. It's not only history and the awareness that history often repeats itself, although it is that. It is His story, ultimately telling one story of God's restoration of all of His creation. He will make right what has gone wrong. This is his perspective always. He sees the big picture. He knows the dangers all around us and is continually warning us, even in a pandemic, perhaps especially so. Tune in to last week's message if you missed it. One day, our sovereign God will judge perfectly. He will punish evil because he is holy and he is good. He will bring justice to the oppressed and the marginalized, the abused and the enslaved. Until then, he will discipline those he loves to get their attention, to draw them back, to grow them stronger. Yes, there is hope for the weak, the broken, the hurting, and for the humble. There is hope in harsh times. This is the message of the prophet Zephaniah, written 2,600 years ago, but needed today more than ever. We've been looking at it now for the past month, and it's been a whole lot of bad news, darkness and dread, in some ways matching our current times and our recent weather. But we are not left there, just as Zephaniah points us toward the light. It's important to fully understand the bleakness and the brokenness before ever rightly rejoicing in hope and healing. Today, a turning point. The judgment of God. How is that so? Well, the judgment of God is double-edged. It is awful in both iterations of the word. God declares his judgment. The righteous judge will say, enough is enough. This is how Zephaniah begins. Zephaniah 1, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Down to verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. For in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord says, Therefore, wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out upon them my indignation, all the burning anger, for then the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. The conclusion of history that God is orchestrating will be awful. Zephaniah calls it the day of the Lord, or simply the day, or that day. Not literally one day, but a time in history, or in the future. Many prophets speak of this coming day of the Lord, when God's wrath and judgment against evil will be poured out. Zephaniah speaks of it more frequently than any other. Zephaniah 1, verse 7, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. See, even here is pictured the double edge of God's judgment. We read this and we might think, that sounds good. God has invited us in, his people, into his presence. He's offering a sacrifice on our behalf as our priest and mediator. And God does do this. But verse 8 makes clear that the sacrifice is us. We are going to be laid upon the altar. The day of the Lord will be awful for those who walk in wickedness and evil, for those who abuse and oppress and enslave, who cause injustice in all its forms. And we say, good, not soon enough. But it's more pervasive than that. God's judgment will be leveled against all idolaters. And as we've seen in recent weeks, none are exempt from that description. We have all turned away from God to pursue other things, namely to trust in ourselves above all. That's idolatry. He pours out or will pour out his wrath and indignation upon all evil like this, all sin, that which mars his perfect creation and his holy character. And that is justice. It is right. He is God, the just and righteous one. He is holy. And until that day, God disciplines those he loves, like a good father. He is incredibly slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, unlike any earthly father. It is not loving for him to allow abuse and evil to continue on forever. Just as in the garden, it was not loving for God to allow Adam and Eve to remain, to eat of the tree of life and to live forever in their broken and sinful state. It was loving for them to die in order to be remade. All of life reveals how desperately we need God and how incredibly good He is. We simply must trust Him. This is why God's judgment first comes to His people, those who have been called by Him. The Apostle Peter would declare the same message 700 years later, 1 Peter four seventeen. For it is time for judgment to begin, and to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what then will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So let's begin with Israel, as Zephaniah does, and in humility find ourselves as recipients of God's judgment. Zephaniah 1.12 At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. We likely know all too well what has been, what it is to be complacent. Are we still, or have we been awoken? We live in a world that pervasively has this attitude. God will do nothing. God's not involved. Friedrich Nietzsche famously summed it up by saying, God is dead, but we're too enlightened to believe in God. And we also, as we battle a complacent heart, we battle a syncretistic one. Those who claim to believe in God and trust in Him while at the same time putting their trust into other people and things, philosophies, ideologies, spiritualities. Let's press into this just a bit. Zephaniah 1.4 and following. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Again, there's God's people. I will cut off from this place those who bow down on their roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Verse 8, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Strange. Wearing foreign clothes? Now that may have meant those who mix fabrics, a strange law but something forbidden in the law of Moses. Or it may have been directed at those who are adopting all kinds of practices of pagan nations, wanting to look like them. Leaping over the threshold? Likely a superstition. Those who claim to believe in God, But their faith is merely religious behaviors out of tradition or routine or obligation. Perhaps a modern-day example. You cannot worship God who is sovereign, who rules over all and is in control of all things, and yet, in your heart, believe in karma or Mother Earth or a universal energy that can be tapped into. It's an either-or, not syncretist. Here come the harsh words. Hang on, for the hope, we are, we, we are doubly under these warnings, and therefore God's judgment. First, as the people of God, we are like Israel, and we should humbly receive these words that were leveled at them. Second, as Americans, we are a part of a pagan nation that does not follow God. Make no mistake. And God warns every nation and will bring judgment upon all peoples of the earth. We must not be quick to dismiss the relevance of Zephaniah's words for our nation today. God has not changed his mind. Zephaniah 2, verse 10 and 11. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. The only thing we don't know is God's timing. But to be sure, nations rise and they fall. Consider Nineveh. It was the capital city of Assyria in Zephaniah's day. Assyria was the most powerful nation in the world, only to be conquered by Babylon, seemingly out of nowhere. And God warned them it was coming, Zephaniah 2.13. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Why? Well, he gives, two, two, he gives the answer two verses later. Verse 15. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. The arrogant say, God will not. The arrogant say, We're greater than any other people who have come before us. And what is God's perspective? Like the osprey perched above the fat and happy trout, what a desolation she has become. The proud will be brought low. It has always been like this. Remember what happened to that first great city in history, the most powerful people who had ever assembled at Babel. They said of themselves, We're great. Let us build a tower like none other that reaches to the heavens. We'll be like gods. Everyone will look to us and bow to us, but we're the ones. And in a moment, God judged them and dispersed them across the earth. Nations that get comfortable and secure, fat and happy, who trust in themselves above God, they are under his judgment and not long according to his word and by evidence of all of history. Only the arrogant say, not us, but God's judgment is clearly proclaimed. Now, this pandemic, this time that we are currently living through, I don't believe is God's judgment, ultimately. I do believe it is a day of warning and a call to awaken for our nation, for our world, especially for God's people within the nations of the world. That's the big picture. That's God's perspective. Let's zoom back in a bit. Zephaniah was speaking to a people, a specific people, the people of Judah, around 630 B.C. And he was warning of coming events, that God's patience was running out. His wrath would be poured out within their generation. Repentance was urgent. And yet, as we know history, God was still patient with them, waiting nearly 50 more years before bringing the sword. Also known as the nation of Babylon, to destroy the capital city, Jerusalem, to overwhelm their army, to take many into captivity, and to impose their rule above them. This would become God's judgment against them. The time of warning had run out, and this judgment would foreshadow his coming judgment. So, therefore, his past judgments stand as warnings and reminders for us today, if we would have the humility and the perspective to receive them and to be sure Zephaniah speaking on behalf of God was also speaking of this much broader judgment when he spoke of the coming day of the Lord as we read earlier events that could only be in the future even from our perspective today sweeping away all the inhabitants on the face of the earth has not yet happened The day of the Lord was partially fulfilled when Jesus would first come into this world, as he declared the kingdom of heaven being near, as he called people to repentance. This was the day of the Lord in many respects. The Gospel of John makes this known. John 3, 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But there's another day of the Lord coming. A second coming of Jesus proclaimed throughout the scriptures, even by Zephaniah. The the events that are always veiled and often only in pictures or images. You Check out the final prophecy in the Bible, the revelation given to the Apostle John. It's hard to put into words, which is why Zephaniah, like so many of the prophets, wrote in a poetic fashion. Discerning the layers of meaning of poetry can be a challenge, to say the least. But we do know the major things. And central to all, God himself is coming. Jesus, the righteous one, has come and he will return. And this time, it won't be in relative obscurity in a little town born to a teenage virgin. It won't be him humbly riding upon a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. No, he will return on the clouds of heaven and every eye will see him. He will be riding a war horse as a warrior king with a sword proceeding from his mouth, with his robe dipped in blood, Revelation 9.19. And teenage boys everywhere say, yes! And the rest of us rightly tremble. That day will be awful in both iterations of the word. Awful for those under God's judgment, but also full of awe because of the glory and majesty and holiness of God. He will bring shalom. He will restore. He will gather his children. He will rescue and deliver. He will pour out grace and mercy and love. He will sing over us. This is why God's judgment is double-edged. We read verse 8 where God says, I will pour out my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. And then in verse 9, this is chapter 3, the judgment radically shifts. For at that time, that day, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Verse 14, For sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And then it shifts and the Lord says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. And I will restore your fortunes before your eyes. This is the final word of Zephaniah, the final judgment of God. How can it be? How can God's judgment be both awful and full of awe? God did and will pour out his judgment. He does not change his mind, he doesn't hold it back, but remarkably, He pours it out upon another. In our place, God has always done this. He has always provided a way for his people to live and not die. The means and the symbol was sacrifice. One who is innocent and guilt-free, unblemished, would die in place of the guilty and the defiled. And God allowed for it to be animals, to become substitutionary sacrifices. All the way from the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, an animal died to cover Adam and Eve. Following the first covenant established with Abraham, God painted a powerful picture of his substitutionary sacrifice. Instead of Isaac dying upon the altar, God himself provided the ram in his place. Fast forward again. At the time of Israel's slavery in Egypt, At the night of their deliverance, an innocent lamb had to die for each household. Its blood spread on the doorposts and on the lintel if they wanted to be spared and passed over by the angel of death. Death was coming, but God made life possible through the sacrifice of a lamb. Fast forward again. This was fleshed out even more. God's people Israel were so full of sin and evil and idolatry They deserved to die, but God was just to kill them. Instead, to pour out his wrath upon another. In his mercy, he pours out his wrath upon an innocent lamb or goat or bull. The offending party or the high priest on behalf of the whole nation would lay their hand upon the head of this innocent lamb, and it would be put to death. Its blood would be spilled, and in that act, God passed judgment onto the animal, a substitutionary sacrifice, and the person who stood there was exonerated, restored, considered righteous. God has always made a way for life instead of death, and it was all foreshadowing his ultimate salvation. His judgment and wrath would be poured out, and not just upon a lamb, but on himself, This is what happened on the cross at the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, the innocent and unblemished one, took upon himself the sin of the world, becoming a vessel of God's wrath, of his judgment, and then put it to death by the shedding of his blood. And now, all who look to him, those who spiritually reach their hands and their hearts to him, will be saved, delivered passed over, restored. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Declared in John three sixteen by Jesus himself, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is why Jesus was in such anguish the night before his crucifixion. It wasn't simply the thought of the pain of crucifixion or of his own death, but of the weight of sin that would be poured upon him. He prayed, Father, would you take this cup from me? The cup or the vessel was a common metaphor in the First Testament for receiving God's wrath, his wrath being poured out. And Jesus prayed to be spared. But then he prayed, thy will be done. And on the cross, Jesus received the full wrath of God, his judgment poured out, and he exclaimed, it is finished, and he gave up his life. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 10, says it this way, By God's will, we have been sanctified, we have been purified, we have been exonerated through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. More on this next week as we consider the glory and the majesty of our God. And now we know what Zephaniah could only imagine. Just think of the turmoil and the confusion he must have felt as he was receiving God's word and communicating it. How is this possible? How can God's judgment and justice be poured out while at the same time he preserves and protects, heals and restores his people? And not only his people, but all peoples, all nations who turn to him. He will make them pure of heart and pure Of speech. And now we know this is how the mystery has been answered in Jesus. Will we turn to him? Will we return to him? Will we reach out to him? Our living hope, the mighty one who can save, the lion of Judah, and our sacrificial lamb. We stand now looking back at what Zephaniah could only imagine. And yet, we also stand looking forward to the coming day of the Lord when God's final judgment will come. And all who are under the blood of the Lamb have no fear of judgment. By his grace and mercy, we will be passed over. This is why we regularly partake in the Lord's Supper or communion, also called the Eucharist, meaning thanksgiving. While Jesus received the cup of God's wrath, we partake in the cup of mercy. We no longer stand before an earthly priest with our hand laid upon the head of a lamb, ready to spill its blood on our behalf. We receive the cup of the fruit of the vine as a symbol and remembrance of what God has done, Christ's blood for us. We'll take that exchange all day, every day. Receive and be thankful today, church, as we respond. And that's just a part of our response in inward reflection, in amazement at what God has done and in upward declaration through praise as we sing of who our God is and what he has done and what he has promised. May we also respond this week with an outward extension. We lament for those who arrogantly defy God and ignorantly turn away. We tremble at the thought of all who stand apart from the blood of the Lamb, who will be recipients of God's wrath. They will be the sacrifice laid upon the altar. God has called us to be his priests and his prophets, to proclaim his goodness and grace extended to all, to represent him here on earth. We have been and are being saved. We have been and are being sent. Lord, help us. Spirit, empower us for your glory and our joy. Amen.